Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend, colleague, and even these days comrade, Derek Davison. And we are excited to welcome to the program Kevin Kleiman, who's a researcher at Harvard's Belfer Center, where I have, I think I've, what is it a literal building? I think I've been there, I've been to Harvard a few times. But Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Happy to be on. Great. And so uh, today we're going to talk about vaccine colonialism, digital democracy, big tech, all of those, all of those good things. So why don't we start with vaccine colonialism or vaccine diplomacy? And so, Kevin, could you give us a definition of what that is and how the U.S. response to COVID-19 might be understood as a reflection of vaccine colonialism? My definition of vaccine colonialism is that the U.S. has limited the distribution of technologies for vaccines to its friends and allies in an attempt to increase its leverage uh, over them, especially in the Cold War with China. So where Biden hails his vaccine diplomacy, actually what that looks like in practice is that countries that are friendly to the U.S. can gain access to mRNA vaccines, and countries that are not often end up with in the, in the 1% of extremely poor countries that uh, lack access to vaccines. So what are some examples? Like, how has vaccine colonialism proceeded, and is, is it a departure from how the United States has acted in the past? It's definitely not a departure from how the U.S. has acted in the past, especially with the HIV epidemic, where the U.S. did not force pharmaceutical companies to share the underlying recipes for their drugs and instead has allowed uh, the epidemic to fester, especially in poor countries. And where this plays out is in East Asia, where countries that are particularly friendly to China end up not having as much access to vaccines, and countries that are friendly to the U.S. get increased access to vaccines. And so you can see that in countries like Myanmar and Cambodia that were excluded from donations that the Biden administration made to East Asia, and where you look at countries like Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Cuba, where the U.S. has not included them in their vaccine per programs because uh, the holdover of John Bolton's troika of tyranny still applies. So in the sense, are, are there actual laws that prevent the United States from sending vaccines to these places? I want to get a, a, a bigger sense of how this functions. Like, what, what are the structures of vaccination? How, in theory, would it work? Like, let's go deep into it, because we always hear about vaccine colonialism, and it seems to represent a very important what would be the right word, like an instantiation of American empire, because we have this clearly global problem that needs to be addressed on a global scale, but then we're still acting in this world of nation states. So if you could go a little bit deeper, and then we could talk about what this suggests about U.S. power. 
Yeah, there's no law that fundamentally prevents the U.S. from sharing these vaccines with other countries. That's largely because the U.S. government is the one that developed the vaccines. So the Moderna vaccine is the NIH Moderna vaccine that was backed by the NIH and received funding from DARPA as far back as 2013. And the Pfizer vaccine was funded with billions of dollars in government money. The World Trade Organization is built to protect intellectual property rights for these giant pharmaceutical companies, but has an explicit carve-out for uh, pandemics, and so that carve-out should apply. And there's been a fight at the World Trade Organization over whether or not there will be a waiver. And South Africa and Brazil have been strong advocates of that waiver, but have been overrided, namely by Europe. Uh, The Biden administration in name dropped its oppositions to such a waiver, but has not negotiated any such waiver. And so the U.S. could just send its vaccine doses to any countries at will and has chosen to do so, but it's done so for geopolitical motivations. And the other point that I make in my piece in Jackman on this is that the technology itself the mRNA technology is extremely valuable and is something that other countries have not been able to replicate. So China, for instance, has not been able to make its own effective mRNA vaccine. And so that's part of why the U.S. has been hoarding the technology is that it believes that it will have beneficial applications in biological warfare or in the prevention of future diseases. And it doesn't want to give its enemies that particular advantage. So what exactly are they afraid of China doing with an mRNA vaccine? What, what is the actual fear? The actual fear, as far as I can tell, is that China will be able to fight off future pandemics as effectively as the U.S., From an offensive perspective, they could engineer a pandemic when it's a convenient time for them. There's some reasonable case to be made at the leading edge of these technologies that you might not want every single person on the planet to be able to engineer their own virus, but that's not what the U.S. is doing. The U.S. is just making sure that millions of people continue to die from COVID. So... That leads us almost naturally to the next question. What are the practical effects of vaccine colonialism? And and what, what are we talking in terms of numbers? What are we talking in terms of effects on the ground? Has there been any development in how the administration has responded to and reacted to this? So the numbers are very stark. Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson initially sold 90% of their vaccines to rich countries and lobbied for rich countries to spend more money on booster shots. And Moderna um, charged poor countries twice as much as it was charging rich countries for its vaccine doses. And what that looks like is that in countries across the global south that had their government budgets collapse during COVID because they were getting less in tax revenue and a lot of people lost their jobs. They haven't been able to stand back up and have the kind of economic recovery that the U.S. has had because the risk of shutdowns and the risk of people going back to work is still constant because people aren't vaccinated, especially against new, more virulent variants. So what do you think this vaccine colonialism, what effect has it had on the course of the COVID-19 virus? There's no reason that the virus shouldn't have ended in 2020. We could have deployed the vaccine across the world. We could have ramped up production. We could have open sourced the vaccine and allowed people and the all of the hundreds of 
manufacturing sites around the world that are able to produce vaccine to do so. But we made a choice in both the Trump and the Biden administration that we would wield this as a weapon of geopolitical influence, that it would benefit the U.S. if the U.S. was seen as a leader in responding to COVID, and that the U.S. would benefit if it was in charge of the distribution of the only vaccines that are good enough to stop the pandemic. There are traditional vaccines, viral vector vaccines, that are just much less effective that other countries can generate, but only Pfizer and Moderna have been able to produce these kind of gold standard vaccines that have been hoarded by rich countries. Assuming that we agree, which I mean, I don't think we do, but let's let's say that we agree that it's good for the U.S. to protect mRNA technology because we want to be able to do biological warfare, whether we want to prevent China from doing biological warfare, whatever, whatever the logic is. Let's say, okay, great, that's fine. Is there not a way that you could have done this with, yes, it would have required significant expenditure, I guess, of money, but you could have paid to ramp up the production here in the United States of enough mRNA vaccines to distribute around the world. What is the explanation? If the United States wanted to be perceived as a leader, that's how you get perceived as a leader. You make the vaccine and send it off and say, here you go. You're welcome. Again, the United States coming to the rescue. What's the explanation for not doing that, which also, by the way, rebounds in, in terms of the fact that you prevent mutations, you, you can get rid of the, the virus more quickly. There's all sorts of reasons to, to do it that way. Why not do that? The top reason seems to be that Joe Biden is stingy and that he would not like to spend money on sending Americans tests or on, uh, you know, institutionalizing responses in local areas and that a million people dying in the United States from COVID is just a blip. And we're going to blame Trump for that for the most part. But I think that a lack of imagination plays another significant part where we are convinced that we can't have nice things and that the U.S. is a declining empire and that we have to lash out and cling on to what we have greedily when, in fact, there's no reason that we couldn't produce 8 billion vaccines in the U.S. It would take much longer than relying on India and other countries that have good manufacturing capacity to build these vaccines. But again, the U.S. would be viewed as a hero if it solved the pandemic in that way. Instead, we're in year two of the pandemic with no end in sight. Why do you guys, this is, to, this is also to Derek, why do you guys think the U.S. Just doesn't give a shit at all about that? Because in 19, if this was 1951, they would. They, if this was 1951, they'd go around the world and claim all these developmental projects. It's interesting to me because in light of the recent article I wrote about the American century, it, it's like there's no project anymore. Like the U.S. doesn't care about being viewed well, even when it's going to redound to its negative benefit, if that's a phrase, which it isn't, but I just coined it. Because, you know, we need other countries to be vaccinated from a purely nationalist perspective. It just is so indicative to me of the state of the American imperial project right now. I think domestic politics explains a lot of it, that people are worried about, uh, you know, everyday lawmakers are worried about making sure that their friends in private equity get their carried interest loophole versus making sure that people in Mexico have are 5% more vaccinated than they were last month. And an, another factor here is just the hatred for 
people who are not vaccinated and the belief that there's something inherently disgusting about them and that we ought not care if they die. But what I lay out in another of my pieces is that, in fact, there are tried and true methods for trying to get people vaccinated. And that is doing deep canvassing or going door to door and talking to people and sharing real lived experience about what it's like to be immunocompromised and not be able to get certain vaccines. And I did that kind of research while I was at Berkeley. And we found that even the most vaccine hesitant people were able to do so. But you wouldn't find that kind of work being done in the government because when the U.S. government proposed to do it domestically, Tucker Carlson said that, you know, Biden was sending people door to door and then Biden shut down the program. Why do you think Biden's so responsive? I mean, I'm sure there's more than just Tucker, but what what does this suggest to you about the Democratic administration that they've been so reticent to be aggressive about vaccines, um, not only at home, but abroad. I, I, I basically I want to drill down a little bit more on the domestic political issues that you see operating here. The Biden administration is just clearly concerned about what Fox News says about the administration versus what people to the left of him say. And those that are dying because they are unvaccinated are going to be less likely to be Democratic Party voters as the Democratic Party shifts from being a party of working people to a party of those that work for Northrop Grumman in the D.C. suburbs, people who are low income, who have to go into work, who are more likely to be exposed and die even if they're vaccinated. Those are people who Biden is not relying on in his reelection. Are there any voices from within the administration who are advocating for giving vaccines? Like what is someone like Samantha Powers saying, you know, these, these types of liberal modernization, developmentalists, internationalists. Because I imagine that if we went into the archives, there would be disagreement within the administration. From your research and reporting, have you discovered anything along those lines? There are definitely dissenting voices. I don't know what uh, Samantha Power is saying in particular, but a lot of those dissenting voices choose solutions that do not involve decreasing the profits of the pharmaceutical industry. So someone like Samantha Power is an advocate of digital development and making sure that countries get online and that that will be the way that they can escape the middle income trap and go from being a really low income country to some sort of upper middle income country. But when you look at what happened with the pandemic, where the U.S. Agency for International Development and the World Bank gave governments a lot of money to build out digital infrastructure in response to the pandemic. That did nothing to decrease virus cases. Contact tracing apps did nothing to decrease virus cases because they do not work. The Bluetooth technology that many of them are built on is not precise enough to tell if you have a close contact within six feet, and GPS is not precise enough to know if you have a contact within 15 feet. Yet the U.S.'s response to help other countries was to say, we'll help you build out these tools, but the tools don't actually do anything. So, I I mean, Danny, to give you my answer to your question, I think there's a couple of things going on here. One is, this is, I mean, this is unipolarity. This is like, we're moving back to multipolarity, and there are people who like that in D.C. because it means bigger defense budgets, but those same people have also forgotten that the last time we had a multipolar world, the U.S. did all these things these soft power things to try and compete with the other 
polls. And I, I think they've lost that concept. The second thing I would say, and this is maybe something we'll talk about when we do the news later this week, there's some indication that the Biden administration is waking up to this. Like the, the declaration that, uh, you know, when we, when we called everybody to kind of get in the pool and, and, you know, isolate Russia economically and diplomatically and nobody showed up basically. I mean, only the, you know, kind of usual suspects showed up. Uh, I think really freaked people out in the administration. You see Blinken, Anthony Blinken now, he's in South Africa. He's rolling out a brand new African policy for the administration that's going to be less militaristic. It's going to be more based on development and diplomacy. And we want to, you know, kind of get the bad counterterrorism taste out of everybody's mouth. So I, I think there's some indication that people are getting this, but, um, you know, obviously not fast enough to do anything about the pandemic. Sorry, I just wanted to... to no, no, don't that. apologize. It's almost half your show. Um, I do... Uh, I, I am curious, and like, if we're going to get this new Cold War rhetoric, with I think without the material basis of a new Cold War, because China and the United States are going to be interacting with each other way more than the U.S. and Soviet Union ever did, do you think we're going to see a return to that sort of global developmentalism, or you could relate it to universities, the refunding of universities and area studies programs? Because I don't think we are. So that's why I think this this era is very new, is that we're going to get this type of language of multipolarity, but the actions and behavior of unipolarity. I don't see any movement in the development space to double or triple the development budget of the U.S. The most aggressive uh, demands to double the U.S.'s development budget have not made any progress in the last five years or so. And from my uh, observation in the digital development space, there's a lot of energy there. It seems like it's low effort for the U.S. and for NGOs to go into a country and say, mimic what Estonia has done, make everyone do their taxes digitally, and then development will come to you from the heavens. That's a very popular approach. It doesn't require a lot of resources on the U.S.'s part because the belief is that it will scale up very easily without additional effort. Derek, where do you see development going? I'm curious because you pay so much attention to this. It was very popular in the 60s. It was very popular in the 90s. And now it seems to just be not very popular, but there's this entire infrastructure organized around it. You know, there's a space when, when people want to do good well, they go into the development industry. It's, it, it's just very interesting to me. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, if we can't even we can't even convince anybody to develop here, like we can't even maintain the stuff that we have in this country because nobody wants to spend money on it and and spending money to develop in, uh, you know, I don't know, Sri Lanka or something to compete with China is only going to be, uh, you know, an even tougher sell. I think you you get um, you may get some support for, um, let's say, proxies. Uh, to do that kind of work on our behalf, whether that's in the private sector or, um, you know, governments that are friendly to us in other parts of the world who have relationships, existing relationships with places where development is, is an issue. Uh, you know, maybe we give them some goodies, weapons, I don't know, uh, you know, to try and they, and then they kind of funnel, you know, development aid uh, down the down the the, the line. I don't know. I, I really don't know. But I don't think um, I don't think you're going to see a return to to Cold War era thinking about this because 
Nobody Damn, wants to spend as the a money. university, I want to get all that that sweet defense money. Uh, pay me to study languages. That that would be that would be cool. But yeah, we're not we're not going to get it. I mean, it really is not to repeat a, a quote that I made up. First time as tragedy, second time as farce. You know, like it, it it's we're gonna not even get like the quote unquote good aspects of military Keynesianism. We're just going to get the military, uh, and it's and it's going to be concentrated. And Kevin, this actually I think leads us naturally to to one of your other pieces, which is on big tech. And I'd love to talk a little bit about the imbrication of big tech and the government and and how this relates to COVID um, specifically. But then if we could take a step back and, and talk a little bit about what this says more generally about Biden, tech, the Democratic Party, et cetera, all those nice little topics we like talking about. Yeah, the tech sector has become a major backer of the Democrats in particular, but both parties, where uh, it was last year that Facebook and Amazon overtook Raytheon as the number one lobbyists in D.C. And their role in the federal government's operating is significant. The federal government relies on Amazon Web Services to host its websites. It gives contracts to all of the major tech companies. And someone that I interviewed for one of my recent pieces from an anti-corruption group, Little Sis, said that if you work at a government agency, you essentially have to go through one of the five major tech companies in order to get any of your digital projects off the ground. That's significant to me because that's the kind of state-private sector interplay that people claim is what makes China evil, is that there are people, members of the Chinese Communist Party that sit on the board of governors of different companies, and so that means that That would never happen here. Oh, my word. No, there's no no revolving door. Um, And so the idea that uh, someone like Jeff Bezos has his own uh, public empire within the government um, has a lot of implications for policy, in particular foreign policy, where Amazon can get whatever it wants from the U.S. government, but it's a harder sell for other governments around the world where Amazon is not based. Has Amazon participated in any overt human rights violations? It depends on your standard for human rights violation. I'm not an expert on Amazon's human rights record, but I would say... Yes. Uh, it's something that happens when Russia or China does it. That's what Yes, yeah, if, you, if, you, if you're not yeah. aware, when Russia or China does something bad, that's a human rights <laughs> violation. When we do it, it's... Or Iran, bad. Iran too. By that standard, then yes. So Amazon has undercut privacy laws in a number of different countries, paving the way for surveillance infrastructure. Um, so in particular, Kenya had proposed a stronger privacy law in 2019. Then all of a sudden, the proposed privacy law got scrapped and Amazon had an increased presence in the country. We don't know what happened behind closed doors, but it appears that Amazon had a strong role in making sure that surveillance can continue in Kenya. And that facilitates all sorts of human rights violations from tracking human rights defenders to you know, any government employee searching up their girlfriend and getting their private information. Hey, everyone, it's Jake here, just plugging our Substack, AmericanPrestigePod.com. There you can sign up for the free list or become a paid subscriber where you'll get an extra full episode plus a mini episode every week. Plus, you can check out all our archives, reading lists, series, etc. So, AmericanPrestigePod.com. Thanks. Kevin, I want this is kind of a big question, but can you situate 
in, in a historical context, the way that technology and technology policy influences geopolitics in this moment. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, when I was in grad school, uh, believe it or not, I studied like medieval Iran uh, and early modern Iran. So, I mean, I can, I can talk, I mean, this isn't, these are trends that I can recognize. Like, you know, if you had been in China in the, you know, 10th or 11th century, you, you couldn't carry silkworms out of China. If you tried and you got caught, you'd be killed. Uh, so the hoarding of a technology, even something that we would regard as, you know, basic, like, uh, silk production, this, this kind of thing has gone on historically. Eventually, you know, they did kind of, they, they did get some worms out, but, uh, that's another story. What's, what's different or if, if it's just, a, you know, basically an intensification, but to, in your mind, uh, what are the trends now and how, how do they kind of compare with the historical approach to technology that we've seen, you know, uh, between empires, between kingdoms, nations, whatever? I think that what we have now is just an increased pace of technological development. And so it's easier to see the way that empires are cutting each other off from different technologies. But the, fu the same fundamental principle of if I have a shiny new toy, I can kill more of your people is at play. Uh, and so the way that I see it, at least from the end of the Cold War, is that America's unipolar moment was significantly... Uh, unipolar technological moment. And that is what a lot of people in the national security state view as underpinning America's unipolar economic moment. So the fact that we had so much of the world's GDP is because we had all of the semiconductor industry, because we had all of the aerospace industry, all of the computer industry. Now, that has started to diffuse and created a panic where other countries can build computers, some can build uh, some components of aerospace, many can build semiconductors. And that means that if we were to engage in World War III with China, which per last week seems possible, um, then other countries wouldn't be starved of the components that only the U.S. was once able to make. So the argument goes that if someone else can uh, build chips that then go into their rocket launchers, they might fire rockets at the U.S. That's, of course, going to happen either way. But the idea that uh, the chips get better each and every year means that there's an increased urgency to cut someone off this year, whereas maybe in the past, every decade or so, you might hoard new technologies. Why don't we shift now, Kevin, to your article on digital democracy and its international implications? So could you maybe frame first this sort of democracy versus authoritarianism thing? Uh, is that really going on in the Biden administration? And if so, how? I think it's just meaningless rhetoric. There's no actual distinction in how the U.S. treats democracies versus how the U.S. treats autocracies. As it relates to technology... Um, the most popular topic in Washington related to technology and international affairs is how to stop China from exporting, quote unquote, digital authoritarianism. Countries like China, Russia, Iran and Saudi Arabia use these tools to surveil their populations for signs of dissent and to detect political opposition. China is the world's largest such exporter to governments from Argentina to Algeria including next-generation artificial intelligence-enabled surveillance technologies. 
that ignores that U.S. digital policy is in many ways more anti-democratic than China's and that America backs many more autocratic regimes using its technology as well. So the definition of digital authoritarianism is contrived from big tech companies that have increased their spending at major think tanks like Brookings and the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And those think tanks just say digital authoritarianism is whatever China does with respect to technology. And digital democracy is what the United States and our friends do. But our friends happen to include Saudi Arabia and a number of other countries where U.S. firms sell surveillance technology and we just push it under the rug and say it's different because uh, it's not China doing it this time. So U.S. firms, in theory, have access to the data. I wonder if it was always such a thin ideological veneer. It did seem like during the Cold War, people genuinely did believe in some sort of framework, but this seems just totally, total nonsense. And so you're, in your opinion, people in the administration aren't even buying this. It's just literally pure propaganda for the public. There are a handful of people in the administration who believe it's an important ideal that doesn't affect most of their policy choices. So there was a debate within the administration as to whether or not to form an alliance for the future of the internet, which was supposed to be launched at the Summit for Democracies. But it fell through because most people recognized that that alliance would include a number of straight-up autocratic states. And so if the U.S. was seen as bandying about with those governments, that would be a bad look for U.S. influence. Instead, it got watered down to the Declaration for the Future of the Internet, which still includes a lot of those governments, but isn't as formal of an anti-China block. Could you maybe talk a bit now about Biden's international digital democracy campaign? What is it? What are the goals? And how has that actually proceeded? In name, the goal of the digital democracy campaign is to stop China from having as much influence over U.S. allies by exporting technology. So that looks like sanctioning Chinese firms like Huawei and uh, Chinese semiconductor companies and making sure that there are international standards in place such that U.S. technologies are prioritized in procurement processes over Chinese technologies. What it actually looks like, though, is backing the uh, agenda of a handful of big companies. And the top three asks of those big companies are to weaken privacy laws in other countries, to eliminate requirements that data that it is generated in a particular country be stored or processed there, and banning taxes on providers of digital services. And those policies have been formally backed by the Biden administration. When I've asked top lawmakers, even in the Democratic Party, whether or not U.S. foreign policy should include promoting privacy rights abroad, they say no, that we only care about privacy rights domestically. And for a concrete example, if you look at the global minimum tax agreement, which was watered down from its initial 25% rate to its 15% rate, the way that countries got signed on to that was that there's an enormous loophole 
where digital services taxes are banned for all signatories to the global minimum tax, which is part of why half of countries in Africa haven't signed on to the tax because they see that they'll get more money by taxing Amazon, Google, and Facebook than by taxing the non-existent multinationals. So what does this suggest to you about big tech's role in U.S. foreign policy going forward? That's really the the big issue here. Um, We've got this public-private system in America, the most perfect system ever developed. So what does this indicate about what's going to happen? I think that tech companies will carry out U.S. foreign policy, just as the United Fruit Company did years ago, and that it will not, there won't be a clear barrier between whether or not an Amazon lobbyist is representing Amazon or they're representing the U.S. government in their dealings with a particular uh, foreign government. And that means that these companies will get more influence even than they have now because their threats are backed not just by their ability to withdraw um, investment from a country, but also by the sway that they have over policymakers and the ability that they have to make policymakers then double down on those threats. Um, When you say that tech companies will pursue U.S. foreign policy goals, is that because they're pursuing U.S. foreign policy goals or because the U.S. government is changing its foreign policy goals to accommodate big tech? Definitely the latter. And I guess what I mean is that there are a number of times where the goals of a company like Google align with the government suspiciously well. So if you look at eliminating data localization requirements, for instance, the Biden administration's major economic initiative in Asia, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, happened to contain a clause that data localization would be banned in countries that are included. And that is also Google and Amazon's top requirement for countries that they do business with in the Asia Pacific, because they want to be able to host their data more cheaply in the United States. But if you host data locally in Indonesia, it's a lot cheaper for people who live in Indonesia, because when they try to load a web page on their phone, the data doesn't have to be fetched from the United States and then ferried back across an undersea cable, which also happens to be owned by Amazon or Google. There's a couple of places I want to go here. But one is, uh, (laughs) there's a line or there's a paragraph actually in your piece on this. Um, And I I wonder if you could just read for people the statement that this think tank called the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation makes about what distinguishes digital authoritarianism from digital democracy, because it is amazing. It's just an amazing two-sentence distillation of pure idiocy. Can you can you just explain this to people? Yeah, the line goes, the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, a think tank backed by Apple, Microsoft, and Uber, says that democracies, unlike authoritarian states, would never abuse technology. Quote, authoritarian nations will use technology for authoritarian purposes. Democratic nations will use them for legitimate and civil liberty protecting purposes. Agreed. American prestige endorses this definition. QED. I mean, if you're an authoritarian, you're doing authoritarian things. But if you're not, it's cool. And and so that that just ignores the fact that the U.S. backs all of these authoritarian states in doing their, uh, quote-unquote, digital authoritarianism. So when you look at the protests in Belarus in 2020, 
the government shut down a lot of social media accounts. It happened to be that a U.S. firm, Sandvine, was providing the software that allowed them to do that. Once Bloomberg reported it, Sandvine pulled out of Belarus, but the private equity company that backs, uh, San- that owns Sandvine, Francisco Partners, was later crowned 2020's top moneymaker for private equity firms in that category. So they're getting awards for how good they are at digital authoritarianism, even though ITIF would say that they don't uh, meet the definition. And it, I mean, it really is, I mean, you, you go through the examples of these, these companies just running roughshod. I mean, the, the, the involvement that Facebook had in, in the genocide in Myanmar, um, that it's had in Ethiopia, you talk about, uh, YouTube deplatforming Palestinian activists, all, 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 all kinds of things that, um, you know, if, if the United States were, really trying to, <laughs> you know, use these technologies or uh, use these companies to pursue uh, legitimate and civil liberty protecting purposes would just never happen. I mean, it's it's sort of a, uh, you know, it's pure capture, I think, by, by these companies that, uh, you know, do what they need to do to survive in uh, these different environments. And the United States government looks the other way, even when it involves uh, human rights abuses on a massive scale. And in addition to human rights abuses, just massive bribery. We don't know the half of what goes on, but earlier this year, there was a whistleblower at Microsoft who says that Microsoft is paying $200 million in bribes in the Middle East and North Africa to gain contracts from governments like Qatar, Ghana, Nigeria, and Zimbabwe. And those contracts often involve reduced privacy protections. And just a couple weeks ago, uh, The Guardian and other news outlets broke news that Uber has done illegal lobbying all around the world. And we don't get insight into a lot of this, but U.S. companies have been doing illegal lobbying in all of these countries. But we view that as okay because they're one-offs and not part of their broader strategy to undermine government's protections of their citizens' human rights. Instead, when viewed in the context of that all of these countries together are working to undermine privacy laws, working to make sure that regulators don't have access to the data that they need in order to enforce countries' privacy laws, then you see that illegal lobbying is just one of their tools in the toolbox. I want to move away from your digital democracy article and and ask you about the uh, recently, uh, recently passed chips act and this is to a point that danny made earlier which is that the u.s and china are really too economically intertwined to have themselves a good old-fashioned cold war on the model of what we saw in the 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 20th century Um, and i think there's a recognition of that in washington and that's why you're seeing this push to develop or rebuild in, in some cases a domestic manufacturing capacity for high tech to find some way around China's kind of control of rare earth, the rare earth market. Um, what do you make of this bill and, and it's the potential repercussions or ramifications uh, of it? And, and also kind of more broadly, uh, these U.S. efforts to kind of find ways around China uh, to maintain uh, tech and, and still... Uh, you know, so we can still have our Cold War, basically. 
The CHIPS bill is the crystallization of Biden's economic war on China. And we he has been escalating Trump's war on China significantly. The Biden administration has sanctioned over 100 Chinese technology companies and over 20 Chinese chip companies in an effort to undermine their ability to produce semiconductors domestically. The chip bill has a lot of things that the tech industry asked for and not a lot of things that anyone else asked for. Uh, It cut out labor protections. uh, It cut out any kind of immigration provisions such that we would have enough people to actually work at the fabrication facilities. Um, It does give $50 billion to extremely profitable companies. Um, If you look at a study from the Institute for New Economic Thinking, uh, between uh, in the in a decade uh, earlier this century, the most profitable semiconductor companies in the U.S. spent 70% of their profits on stock buybacks. And there are provisions in the bill that reduce the ability of companies to spend money on dividends and on st- stock buybacks if they get it directly from the government. But there was a nuclear bomb that was dropped in the tech sector the day after the chip bill passed, which is that Intel recorded its first net loss in 30 years and announced that it would spend $4 billion less on manufacturing and $4.5 billion more on dividends. And so if Intel is to get $3 billion for its manufacturing facility in Ohio, then that will not counterbalance the amount that it increased in payments to its shareholders. So I tend to lean towards the Bernie Sanders view of why did we need to give $50 billion to the most profitable companies? The government could have just told them, you must make semiconductors here or we will cut existing subsidies for you. Or we will you know, sue you for all of your labor violations and your union busting. Instead, we took the approach of we're going to make your profit margins balloon. Should American taxpayers provide the microchip industry with a blank check of over $50 billion at a time when semiconductor companies are making tens of billions of dollars in profits and paying their executives exorbitant compensation packages. I think the strategic case for the CHIPS bill is pretty weak either way you look at it. So if you look at it from the hawkish viewpoint, you could see that China has already won a lot of the semiconductor battles. So according to Bloomberg, as a result of the Biden and Trump administration's war on China's semiconductor industry, China has increased its spending on semiconductors significantly, and now 19 of the top 20 fastest growing semiconductor companies in the world are in China. And similarly, there have been announcements in recent weeks from China's leading logic chip producer and memory chip producers, SMIC and YMTC respectively, that show that rather than being two generations behind the leading chip makers in Taiwan, they're actually only one generation behind. So restrictions on Chinese chips there are counterproductive in that they lead to some more investment at home. But if you take a more dovish view, then you could see that China is unlikely to have enough semiconductor uh, manufacturing capacity that it will 
be able to destroy the U.S. and the world over. When the U.S. designs three quarters of all chips, Taiwan makes 90% of advanced chips, and the Dutch firm ASML has a near monopoly on the advanced machines that are necessary to etch circuits into chips. So it's a broad issue where the anti-China caucus won in Congress, and as a result, we have... $50 billion spent on semiconductor manufacturing and not a lot of money spent on uh, actually cooperating with China on climate change, say. Well, that sounds like a good, uh, good use of money. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Everyone check out Kevin's work at Jacobin and in general. We really uh, look forward to having you back sometime. Thanks again. Thanks, guys. (laughs) 